episode number 179 of the Fearless Presentations podcast, the fastest, easiest way to eliminate public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stanett. Everybody, welcome back to Fearless Presentations. I'm Doug Standard, CEO of the Leaders Institute, and my goal is to help you become a fearless and professional speaker and presenter. On this episode, we're going to continue our masterclass about presentation skills. And this week, I'm going to cover how to be more persuasive when you present to audiences. Basically, I'm going to cover how to anticipate an audience's reaction based on human nature and how to use that reaction to actually win people to your way of thinking. By the way, I've created a free downloadable guide for you. All you have to do is just go to fearlesspresentations.com slash audio guide, and we'll link that in the show notes, by the way, just so it's easy for you to get to. And each week, we're going to cover new sessions of the masterclass. I'm going to add more to the guide as well. So if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure and do that and leave me a review as well. All right. So enjoy this week's session of the masterclass. The common persuasion technique that most speakers use in business is number one, they offer an opinion that the speaker believes to be the truth. And then number two, they offer facts and data to verify the veracity of that opinion. Now, this technique actually sounds really logical. However, it rarely works. It's a terrible, terrible way to try to persuade people. I'll give you an example of this. I love German chocolate cake. In fact, I personally believe that German chocolate cake is by far the absolute best tasting cake available. Best cake on the planet. And in fact, data about best-selling candy in the world verifies this. All 10 of the best-selling candies in the world are actually chocolate bars. In addition, though, coconut consumption worldwide increased by 17.2% just last year. And the pairing with chocolate actually increased last year by 26.86%. So as you can see, German chocolate cake is the absolute best on the planet. (laughs) So basically... If you agree with my premise, if you actually like German chocolate cake, then you'll probably accept that data. Uh, By the way, all of that data is true. However, if you don't like German chocolate cake, then you're going to look at the data and be a little bit more skeptical. Human nature will kind of kick in. And when that happens, you'll want to try to poke holes in the premise. Uh, So basically to disprove that opinion, the opinion that I have, all you really need to do is just find a single incident where that particular opinion is not true. Like, for instance, you could say something, well, wait, Doug, hey, Doug, what about cheesecake? In New York, cheesecake is way more popular than German chocolate cake. So the moment that one contrary fact is submitted, the entire opinion becomes more difficult to defend. So this style of persuasion is really flawed because step one is to take an opinion and then look for data and statistics to verify that the opinion is true. By the way, you can find data and statistics on the internet to verify anything. (laughs) You want to do something just for fun? Just type in proof of life on Mars into Google. When I did this, the number one result was from Wikipedia saying, in quotes, no proof of past or present life has been found on Mars. 
And then the second result, one immediately under that on Google was from Scientific America saying, I'm convinced we found evidence of life on Mars, right? Both sides of the argument started with an opinion and then look for statistics and data to verify that opinion. Uh, by the way, just so you know, surveys show that 27% of all statistics are just absolutely made up. And some of you will actually get that one a little later. But basically, an opinion backed up by statistics rarely persuades anyone who doesn't already believe the initial opinion. So if that's the case, how do we actually persuade other people? Well, the technique that I like to use is I want to start with a provable statement. So instead of starting with an opinion, start by creating a statement that you can actually prove. For instance, instead of saying German chocolate cake is the best cake, that's an opinion. Start with your profit margin on German chocolate cake is larger than plain chocolate cake. That's a provable statement. You can actually look at the data and statistics and prove that that statement is true. And because this statement can easily be proved, the audience will be less argumentative with you. So the persuasion technique now comes about when we make a suggestion or an opinion about what to do based on that fact. For instance, you could say your profit margin on German chocolate cake is higher than plain chocolate cake. So I'd suggest adding it as an option for your customers. The major difference between the two ways is that the benefit to the listener is actually inserted automatically into the second way. The benefit to adding the cake is that my profit will increase. Now, I want more profit. So basically, you're showing the audience how they can get what they want by doing the thing that you are suggesting. It's a subtle way to win people to your way of thinking. Now, when you add a story to this premise, though, it actually increases the effect exponentially. So if you start your persuasive speech with the provable statement that benefits the audience, you're going to automatically reduce resistance. However, if you add one simple thing to the beginning of that speech, your odds of persuading the group will increase dramatically. To persuade people, you know, what you really need to do is you want to capture their attention and then hold it. You want to be memorable. You want to stay in rapport with the audience. You want to increase your credibility as an expert. Now, if there were only a single way to do all of those things at once, oh, yeah. If you recall that we talked about stories, how stories do all of those things. And they also lower the defenses of the audiences so that they're less likely to be argumentative to us. The Gettysburg Address is probably Abraham Lincoln's most famous and really most quoted speech. And his purpose when he gave that speech was twofold. First, he wanted to honor the fallen soldiers who sacrificed their lives on that battlefield. And then second, he had the opportunity to persuade two deeply divided groups to come together as one unified nation. Now, amazingly, if you read the entire speech out loud, the speech would actually take less than maybe a minute and a half to deliver. And it kind of reads like this. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. 
The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far beyond our poor power to add or to detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln starts the speech with an example on which both sides can agree. It's a provable statement. Our fathers brought forth a new nation conceived in liberty. He follows that with another provable statement. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. Both of those things are things that are inarguable. Both parties, both sides on this, uh, in this disagreement are going to be able to agree on those two things. Then he does something really brilliant. He spends the rest of the speech telling the story about the soldiers who died on that battlefield. This takes up about two thirds of the entire speech. And then at the end, he offers his suggestion to make sure that the United States stays united. By the way, this isn't a new technique. Um, Aesop used this 2,300 years ago. And in fact, my, my first grade teacher used to start each school day by reading an Aesop's fable. If you think about it, have you ever tried to keep 20 or so six-year-old kids entertained? It's not an easy feat. But the stories not only did that, but they also taught us valuable life principles. So here's a popular Aesop's fable. A fox one day spied a beautiful bunch of grapes hanging from a vine trained along the branches of a tree. The grapes seemed ready to burst with juice, and the fox's mouth watered as he gazed longingly at them. The bunch hanged from a high branch, and the fox had to jump for it. The first time he jumped, he missed it by a long way. So he walked off a short distance and took a running leap at it, only to fall short once more. Again and again he tried, but in vain. Now he sat down and looked at the grapes in disgust. What a fool I am, he said. Here I am wearing myself out to get a bunch of sour grapes that are not worth gaping for. And off he walked very, very scornfully. There are many who pretend to despise and belittle that which is beyond their reach. So in this fable, Aesop uses the story as a way to really capture and hold your attention for about a minute or so, just like what Lincoln did. And then 300 years after Aesop, Jesus used the same technique. So, and yes, on occasion, Jesus went in and overturned tables in the temple, but the persuasion technique that he used most often was telling parables. He'd start with a simple story or an example, and then he would make his point. So here's an example of one of them. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happening to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed over to the other side of the street. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So basically in that situation, the person who was questioning Jesus was looking to put him on the defense. And Jesus used a story or a parable as a way to kind of turn the tide and actually win that guy to his way of thinking. So 2000 years later, the, that parable is still being used to teach life lessons today. A more modern example of this technique, though, was used by Ronald Reagan in his farewell address from office. In that speech, Reagan recalled, back in 1981, I was attending my first big economic summit, which was held that year in Canada. The opening meeting was a formal dinner of the heads of government of the seven industrialized nations. Now I sat there like a new kid in school and listened, and it was all Francois this and Helmut that. They dropped titles and spoke to each other on a first name basis. Well, at one point, I sort of leaned in and said, my name's Ron. Well, in that same year, we began the actions we felt would ignite the economic comeback. We cut taxes and regulations. We started to cut spending. And soon the recovery began. Two years later, at another economic summit with pretty much the same cast, uh, at the big opening meeting, we all got together. And all of a sudden, just for a moment, I saw that everyone was just sitting there looking at me. And then one of them broke the silence. Tell us about America's miracle, he said. Each of these four speakers share a common process to persuade the audience. Each of the examples starts off with the who, what, when, where. You know, for instance, in the first one, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. In Aesop's fable, a fox one day spied a beautiful bunch of ripe grapes hanging from a vine. In the parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And then in Reagan's speech, it was back in 1981, and I was attending my first big economic summit, which was held that year in Canada. The who, when, and where basically sets the stage and gives a, a very quick overview of the incident or story. It's a great way to get started. By the way, as you relay the story, the more details that you put into the story, the more memorable that story becomes. Now, the stories are captivating and they make the audience want to listen. However, if you really want to reinforce the story in a positive way, you can learn a lesson from Aesop and end with a moral of the story. For instance, he said, there are many who pretend to despise and belittle that which is beyond their reach. He didn't leave the point of the story for us to figure out ourselves. Instead, he told us what the point of the story was. And knowing what we know about human nature, most people are self-centered. A final step to be more persuasive is to add a benefit to the audience as well. Everyone wants to know what's in it for me. And since they want to know this, just tell them that thing. So when you put all of these component pieces together, you end up with what Dale Carnegie in his book, The Quick and Easy Way to Effective Speaking, called the magic formula, a story with an action benefit statement. So this simple formula is one of the most effective ways that we have found to persuade people. Or if you can't persuade them, if tensions are high and the trust between the parties is not really strong, even if we don't persuade the other party, we might at least allow ourselves to be heard by the other party. So we call this magic three-step process the incident action benefit or IAB formula. So part one is the incident or story. So basically what you want to do is tell a story to establish rapport, gain credibility, build common ground with your audience. Personal incidents tend to work best in these situations, just like what Reagan used. 
And then once you complete the story, part two is to give an action or some advice to your audience. Tell your audience exactly what you want them to learn from the story. The action statement should be really crisp and concise. The fewer words, the better. And then the third part is the benefit to the audience. Tell the audience what they will get if they do the thing that you're asking them to do. It should also be very clear, totally focused on the benefit that the audience will receive. So here's an example. Let's say that you've got an employee, maybe it's a sales representative, who has a habit of showing up late for work. (laughs) If I wanted to try to persuade that person to come in earlier, I might use a story from my own personal experience to try to persuade them. So when I first started in sales about 20 or so years ago, I was so excited about my new job that I used to come into the office about an hour before anybody else, just to make sure I was prepared to start the day. And one of these mornings, the phone rang at 729 in the morning. And since I was the only one there, I answered it. A man named Bill Lawley, who was the president of a major commercial real estate company, asked me to drop by and talk to him about doing some work for his people. And by nine o'clock that morning, I had closed a $13,000 piece of business with him. And then in the next four weeks, I closed three more contracts just like that. And what I found out during that, that early time period was that decision makers like to work in the morning. <laughs> they like to do business with people who also work early in the morning as well. So basically, you should probably try to come in earlier. And if you do, you'll increase your income pretty dramatically based on the extra commissions that you'll earn. Now, your audience is more likely to remember the story than they would an order that you give them. They're going to be much more likely to cooperate enthusiastically. People don't like to be dictated to and they don't like to be ordered around but many will gladly do things that you suggest indirectly if it's clearly in their best interest to do so. So by telling them exactly what you want them to do, you avoid miscommunication. By telling them how they're gonna benefit from the action that you suggest, you're you're more likely to actually motivate them effectively as well. So if you wanna get more enthusiastic cooperation from your audience, try using the incident action benefit formula. So here's an action item that you can use to better apply this in the real world. Take a few of the story ideas that came up from the previous lesson and add in an action benefit statement for each one. So don't forget to download the free guide at fearlesspresentations.com slash audio dash guide, and it will give you instructions on how to do this. So thanks a lot for being a part of Fearless Presentations this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about gestures and movement, a lot, how to stand in front of an audience and how to move around the audience so that you look really powerful and confident. So we'll see you next week. Bye, y'all. Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week.